may be seated. John 1, kids, you guys can go. In the country of Wales, there is a village called Bed, Bed Gelert, the name of it which means Grave of Gelert. There was a famous legend about this Gelert who was actually a dog, and he was the hound of Llewellyn the Great. One day on returning to his castle, Llewellyn found his child lying dead and found Gelert still alive, laying beside the child, but wounded. Llewellyn looked at the situation and quickly surmised that the dog had killed his son. So he took out his sword and he held it up and he rammed the sword through the dog and killed it, only to discover too late that the dog had killed a wolf and the wolf was lying underneath it and the dog had, had fought gallantly to save the son. And so in his blind rage, Llewellyn had killed a faithful friend. I read that story this week, and I thought, what a tragic story. And then I thought about our text and the subject matter that we are looking at today. In a much more tragic way in the world, this is what's going on. As the world takes a look at Jesus and forms quickly a perspective of who he is, and with their opinions and with anger and and confusion and a number of different things, rails against the one who laid his life down so that they could come into a relationship. And there's so much confusion. The confusion comes because the world walks in darkness. And so we're going to talk about um, darkness today and there were, uh, of relationship pre-Christ, what that's like, why it is that way. And then we will close our time today in the text and looking at um, the glorious relationship that has come to us in salvation through grace. So our text this morning will be 9 through 13. I want to put it all together. Um, this is our third week um, together. So let's start in John 1, 1. And uh, so we can kind of see the flow of things. This introduction by John is really, really significant. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made. And in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. And he came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And here's our text today. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and yet the world did not know him. And he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So let's talk about this text this morning. The first thing I want us to see is the first part of verse 9, is that, is that Christ is the genuine source of light. He is the genuine source of light. And so John begins verse 9 by saying this, the true light. So the Greek word for true here is a Greek word that means genuine, 
It means legitimate. It is real. It is authentic as opposed to a light that is false, that, that needs something to keep it going. If we had a, a candle today, something's got to light the candle. Um, these lights that are here, um, there has to be electricity and the switch has to be lifted up so that the lights can come on. With Christ as the true light, He is light Himself. So he doesn't need anything outside of himself to be light. He is just simply light. He is the true light. There is no light but him. He is the source of it all. And so John is establishing this for us, that there is light and life that shines on truth and who God is. It can only come through Christ. He is not a borrowed light. He is not a secondary, lesser light He is the true light as opposed to shadows and symbols. He is preeminent and the all-glorious light of God. No one shines brighter or more brilliant than Christ. So therefore, in Him, it is important for us to see that we are able to see all of the glory in who God wants us to see who He is. So just by way of simplicity and reminder, where there is darkness, you cannot see. And this is our world today. This is why our world takes out a sword of words and attitudes and actions and laws and rams it through this idea of Christ being the sovereign Lord. Those who walk in darkness, they cannot see. Listen to this words in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 13, I love this, love this. You can shout if you want. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's just amazing to think about today. We once were so separated, so lost, couldn't see, not able to breathe spiritually, just dead, and God did this work and he transferred us. We didn't walk over. He transferred us. Glorious grace of God taking us from where we were into this relationship with Him. So where there is darkness, one cannot see, but where there is light, one can see. And His divine power has made all things visible. And I believe when light shines on the human soul, the light of Christ shines on that. There's an illumination that is there. And you will hear new Christians, and I love to hear new Christians talk. And here's what a new Christian will say. And you may have said this when you became a believer. Wow, I never saw that before. I am seeing life completely different. Why? Because they used to live in darkness and you don't understand the purpose of life. And now that this transfer has taken place, you see. And there's an ability to to experience the life of Christ in a way because there's this great illumination because we are now in Him. And so Jesus is the only true, real light that the world has today. Now there's a lot of things claiming to be light. There's a lot of things saying, hey, come gather around me. I'll... I'll clue you in to what you need to do. And no, it's all false. He is the only one. Listen to this again. He is the only one who in himself needs no nothing else to be light. Every other light needs something else. J.C. Ryle, in writing about this text, wrote this. 
Christ is to the souls of men what the Son is to the world. He is the center and source of all spiritual light. Like the sun, He shines for the common benefit of all mankind, for the high and for the low, for the rich and for the poor, for Jew and for Greek. And like the sun, He is free to all. All may look at Him and drink health out of His light. If millions of mankind were mad enough to dwell in caves underground or to bandage their eyes from the sun, their darkness would be their own fault and not the fault of the sun. So likewise, Ryle writes, if millions of men and women love spiritual darkness rather than light, the blame must be laid on their blind hearts. But whether men will see or not, Christ is the sun and the light of the world. And there is no light for sinners except in the Lord Jesus. There's a beautiful illustration about coming to know the light of Christ in John chapter 4, and we'll get there um, down the road when we get to, to, to John chapter 4. And let me just remind you of the story. So the disciples were going through Samaria. Um, he sends, Jesus sends um, them into town to buy food. Everybody's hungry, so they go in to buy food. He sits down by Jacob's well, and sometime in the afternoon, a woman comes with her water jar. She's got a big water jar, and and it's obvious from the text she's an outcast in her community because in those days uh, we do this when we go to parts of Asia. You get water in the morning. You go to the well in the morning so you can have water to cook at breakfast and to wash and all of those kinds of things. And so this is all done in the morning. So the fact that this woman is coming in the afternoon indicates that uh, this is unusual and she's an outcast. She doesn't want to be there when everybody else is there. And as the story unfolds, as Jesus has a conversation with her, Jesus shines a light on her life. See, this woman's life thought this. I have a lesson for all the single ladies in the room this morning. She had thought this. If I could just get a man, that would fix my life. Ladies, free advice. There ain't a man on this planet that's going to fix you. You're so messed up. Just kidding. Anyway. <laughs> Actually, that guy is so messed up, he can't fix you. And you're so messed up, you can't fix him. Only the man Jesus can fix us. This woman had six husbands, six, and is now living with a guy that's not her husband. She'd probably just gone, man, six times. I don't even, I'm not going through the ceremony again. We'll just, we'll just kind of play house together, which is very common in our culture today. Nothing really ever, ever really changes. So Jesus shines a light on her and has this unique conversation, and she recognizes this is God. I'm talking to God. I'm talking to God. And she's brought this water jar because she's thirsty physically. But listen what the text says, John 4, 28. So the woman, after this conversation, left her water jar and went away into the town and, and wanted to tell everybody who had opinions about her what just happened to her. Now, this is so marvelous. She leaves her water jar, and this will happen in life. If you came to Christ later on and you were investing your life in things of the world, and you thought, man, this is satisfying, and then it was just empty and empty and empty, and you came to Christ, you left your water jars behind never to go back for them because you found something that was more satisfying. And you know what the woman found so freeing? And it's evident that the light of Christ and the life of Christ had changed her. She went back in the town and said, hey, you got to come out here. I met this guy who told me all my stuff, all my junk, 
all my stuff, all my secrets. He told them, he, he told me all of them. It's so awesome that that was exposed because my life has changed. And you've got to come out and see this guy. See, that's what happens when the genuine light of Christ shines on a life. We don't keep secrets. You know that secrets are death. They're death. You've got a secret sin. You've got a secret something. I would encourage you, get a believer in your life. And confess that sin, let them walk with you, let them pray for you, because secrets are death. So, John says, the true light, the genuine light, the original source of light, was coming into the world. And he gives light to everyone. So look at, look at the next part of verse 9. So the true light, which gives light to everyone, and that's the second point, gives light to everyone. So let me ask this question, how does the coming of Jesus enlighten Every man. It's a little bit complex, but understandable. I think it's, it's pretty um, fascinating. Here's what, the, here's what the Bible would reveal to us. So when Christ came in a body 2,000 years ago, he was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, lived a couple years in Egypt early on, grew up in the city of Nazareth, and then somewhere around age 30 or so started his public ministry. God was living, it's amazing, God was living on the planet. Living on the planet. In a body, righteous, holy, pre-existent, self-existent, complete light of God was living on the planet. So you could go see Him, you could talk with Him. Now before that happened, Old Testament time, you were to see God, what would happen to your life? You would die. Couldn't see the glory of God. Old Testament, you couldn't see it. But now in the incarnation, Jesus is in a body. He's 100% God, 100% man. He's here, and you could go, and you could see him. And so, so pre that incarnation, the Bible says that people in the Old Testament time and also in the church age time, there's something called general revelation. And it just simply means this, that God has revealed enough about himself in creation to indicate that there is a God who made all this. There's, there's someone who's bigger. May not have ever heard the name of Jesus, but it's clear that God has made enough of Himself plain to people, that watch this, that people are without excuse. Now, in our world today, people go, that's not fair. There's that guy living somewhere in the world, and, and, and no missionaries have come, and his government hates Christianity. Nobody can come. Radio stations can't get the gospel in there. No Bibles have been written in his language. There's nobody ever come. So, so he should be without excuse. Well, listen to what the scripture says. Romans 1.19. For what can be known about God, listen to these words from Paul, is plain to them. Plain. It's simple. It's clear. Okay, there's mountains there. Those are awesome. Did they just decide to come up out of the ground, or did somebody make them? Did the ocean decide, I'm just going to be an ocean, or did somebody do this? And so general revelation would say this. You can look at creation, and you can see somebody, someone is behind all of this. And so there's in a sense that he's the light to everyone, in regard to that, this is, this is what it also says. For his individual attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world 
in the things that have been made. Now listen to what Paul says here. So they, they, people, are without excuse. They're without excuse. Up earlier in verse 19, I, I skipped that accidentally. It says, it, God has made it plain to them because God, why? Why has he made it plain? Because it says God showed it to them. God revealed it. I'm the maker of this. So there's a sense that he becomes the light for everyone because in, in creation it reveals somebody glorious did all of these amazing things. Somebody did all these amazing things. And so this reference as Christ as the true light, it means this in the Greek, that which gives light to everyone, it means to shine on something to reveal it. Now, as a kid, uh, my dad was a big hunter. So a bunch of Friday nights and Saturday nights, we would go outside of Waco where I grew up. We had some people that owned about 50 acres, and we would get in pickup trucks, and we would shine a spotlight and we would shine it around looking for eyes and and when that light shone and you could see that coming back it revealed okay something something's hiding in there something is over there and so that's the idea here the true light the original genuine light had come into the world and was revealing himself and shining his light revealing the beauty and the glory of who God is and, I, and I, I tell you, we, we live in this church age here, but sometimes I, I, I wonder, man, what would, have, what would it have been like to have been in Peter's mother-in-law's house that day that Jesus is teaching and some friends have climbed the roof and they opened up the roof and they lowered their, their paralyzed friend down and Jesus said, hey, get up, take up your mat and go home. And everybody in the room is like, oh, you can't do that. And... and uh, and yeah, I can. I just did it. See, he's walking out right there. I just did it. And just, can you imagine what it must have been like to see Jesus do stuff? Oh, amazing. So he came in the incarnation and he revealed the glorious light, not just in general revelation, but in a specific way in Christ. And this light was not just for light's sake, but the light in revelation was in, in regard to everybody seeing what was true. Now I'm going to give you three things real quickly about this idea of gives light to everyone. What was, what was the purpose in the incarnation for Christ coming, living here, taking on a body, having blood, having eyes, feet, hands, a voice? What, what was the purpose in, in Him coming and revealing uh, the glory of God here? And the first one is simply this. He came to reveal what was true, what was genuinely true. Let me give you a couple of verses with that. John eight twelve. And again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Very familiar one. John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so if we want to know what's true, Christ's incarnation, when He came here, He taught, He revealed the glory of who God is, how God loves, this, this unique personal nature of God in Christ. And so He revealed what is true. He's shown the light on, this is what's true. I don't want you to be confused about it. it this, this, this is who God is. This is who I am. This is what is true. Secondly, He came to reveal the glory of God. Not only did He come to reveal what is true, but He came to reveal the glory of God. Matthew eleven twenty seven. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, 
and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Father or the Son chooses to reveal Him. So one of the things Jesus did is He chose to reveal to some people the glory of the Father, the glory of who He was. He also chose to hide it and a blindness to people. We'll see that here in just a moment. John 14, 9, another familiar part. Jesus said to Philip, Have I been with you so long that you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen whom? What did Jesus say? Seen the Father. I am revealing to you the glory of God. So when it says here, the true life, the genuine life, the original source of life, when he came in the incarnation, not just the general revelation of creation, but when he came and he took on skin, he revealed and he came to reveal what was true. Y'all remember his conversation with Pilate? They had this conversation about truth. And Jesus tells Pilate, I came for this purpose. I'm, I'm, I came to bear witness about what is true and about what is right. So he also came to reveal the glory of God, but in the incarnation, he also came to identify and divide the whole human race. And let me explain that. The light of Christ, John says, shines on every man, and as it shines upon people, it immediately identifies and divides the whole human race in two ways. The first way is those who do not know the light and hate the light. The second way is those who receive the light, and walk in the light of salvation. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Listen to these words. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than the light, because their works for evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. So why do people, like I used to live in Houston, they have bugs that come out at night in Houston inside your house. And you, boy, you can do lots of work, but it's just hot and humid down there. And you got to love roaches. Not. Boy, nighttime, you, light turns on and they, they scatter. And so John is saying, it's, 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 here's the reality. Jesus has come. He's revealed what is true. He's revealed the glory of the Father. He's revealed who He is. That You have to come to Him. If you want life and you want light, you've got to come to Him. But when the light comes on, the world scurries like bugs to hide because they don't want to be exposed that they hate the light and, they, and their deeds are evil. But there are those who love the light. And so when the light shines... They respond differently. Listen to these words, John 3, 21. Whoever does what is true, they come to the light. They don't run away from it. They come to the light. John 8, 12. And again, Jesus spoke to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, you want to know what a believer is? A believer comes to the light, and they're okay about the light. They follow Jesus. And this one, John 9, 39. For he said, for judgment I've come into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. See, Jesus' point here is just simply this. <clears throat> I am the light. And if you want to walk in darkness, you can do so, but I have got this ability to transfer you from that into the kingdom that belongs to me. It's life. 
And so immediately this giving light just says this. He, revealed, he came to reveal what is true. He came to reveal the glory of God and identifies and divides. Thirdly, this morning, I just want to touch on this in verse third part of verse 9 and the first two parts of verse 10. And I want to talk about the glory of the incarnation, that God came near. Here's what third part of verse 9 says. Was coming into the world, and he was in the world, and yet and the world was made through him. So listen, man, he was coming into the world, he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Martin Luther had a friend named Philip, and he was on his deathbed. And Philip was a passionate lover of Jesus. And he wrote on his deathbed, he wrote out some of the reasons why he wasn't afraid to leave this earth and go to heaven. And one of those reasons that he wrote on the piece of paper was this, is he would finally be able to understand and learn fully the union of the two natures of Christ as both God and both man. And the scripture teaches that affirmation. Jesus, in Jesus, in his body, he was 100% man, and yet at the same time, he was 100% God. And there are multiple scriptures I could point you to today. Philippians 2, 5 through 7, we read that this week in our W4. Hebrews 2, Hebrews 2, 16, um, that, uh, that part about him being fully man, him, the part about being fully God. Uh, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, John 1, 1, and Colossians 2, verse 9. And I tell you, the glory of the incarnation is amazing. Just, I just want you to stop with me. Maybe you don't get as excited about it as I do. God came here. 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 He was born in a dirty stable. He's so, this glorious, self-existent, pre-existent, coexistent, glorious God who created everything by speaking, came here, born in a stable, submitted Himself away to earthly parents, grew up. He fell down and scraped His knee and it bled. He needed His mom to bandage it up. He had to do everything that you and I do as humans. He came here, and He came here in such a way that He lived perfectly. And in the incarnation, this reality that God came, 100% man, 100% God, it's glorious. And without it, there are four things I want to bring out just for a moment that you and I have got to see. And the first one is simply this. Without the incarnation, without Christ coming here, you and I would be eternally lost. We would be eternally lost. He had to come. Now, I'm going to quote John Calvin twice, and I hope you're not one of those that because maybe you disagree with a little bit of an aspect of John Calvin's theology that you've, you just write off everything that John Calvin said. John Calvin was a tremendous, influential theologian. He wrote about this. Listen to these words. He said, The situation would surely have been hopeless had, had the very majesty of God not descended to us. Since it was not in our power to ascend to Him... Hence, it was necessary for the Son of God to become for us Emmanuel, God, with us. Isaiah 7, 14, and Matthew 1, 23. So the glory of the incarnation is this, is He had to come. There would be no salvation. He had to come. There wasn't a high priest who could keep the law. 
there needed to be a high priest to come keep the law, and there's only one, and that was Jesus. Secondly, is in the incarnation, he identifies with you and I in that. He's the only one who could come and do what needed to be done for man. So he became a man to identify with us by becoming one of us. Listen to what Hebrews 2.14 says. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. So he came, and he came, and he was like us. His heart beat. He needed to breathe. He needed to sleep. He needed to eat. He had friends in his life. He partook, since the sons of man partake of the same things, he came to identify with us, and he, partake, he partook of the same things except for sin. He didn't sin. So thirdly, he satisfies the law's requirements in the incarnation. As the last Adam, Jesus fully obeyed the law that you and I could not keep. And as we read this week in Philippians chapter 2, he became obedient all the way to what? Death. All the way to death, he was obedient to the law, fulfilling it. And so therefore, through his sinless, perfect life, his righteousness was wholly sufficient to pay the price for our sin. Last thing about the glory of the incarnation, and we could spend a lot of time here today, but let me just do this. The incarnation was absolutely necessary to reconcile us to God. Christ, listen, had to become man so that he could bear the burden of sin in his body, as Peter talks about in 1 Peter 2. And he had to be God in order that because he was the only one who had the power to bear sin. Another person, I couldn't, you couldn't, nobody else, Martin Luther couldn't, the Apostle Paul couldn't, Abraham couldn't. Nobody could bear the burden of sin except God himself in a body. So he had to be man to fulfill the law, but he also had to be God at the same time because only God could bear that. And so when we at Christmas time, by the way, is three months away, to encourage you today. Christmas is three months away. When we celebrate and we think about that He came here, do not lose sight of how glorious that is. It had to be. It had to be. He had to come. All right, look at the next part in verse 10. Point four this morning is the gospel reveals the tragedy of unbelief. So we put all of it together. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. There's a great tragedy that's connected to the gospel, and it's the tragedy of unbelief. And I believe that this verse reveals how utter, deeply fallen, and depraved we are in seeing our rejection of God. God made us, God made the world, and the world says, whatever God, I hate you. I hate you. I hate that you're light. I hate that you um, are going to hold me accountable. Um, I am not interested in any of that. And I believe the full display of the darkness of the hearts of man can be seen when the glory of God was walking on the planet. You could see him. You could talk to him. And people just thought him not worthy of adoration and not worthy of their lives. 
And I believe living in the swamp of spiritual death blinds us to the truth where people love sin more than they'll ever love the Savior. And I tell you, the gospel is incredibly good news because people who hate God get to be adopted into the family. It's just glorious in what he does. Now, I want you to hear this because I think it's important. Not that anything else I've said is not important, but I really want you to hear this. The great tragedy of the wickedness of sin that so fills the human heart is that wickedness can only bring death and separation and it rejects all things that are God. And therefore, I think it's absolutely critical to see this, that sin can never make sense of this life. Can't. Darkness can't make sense of this life. Sin cannot make sense of this life. It only plunges people into deeper darkness and leads to a place of destruction. And there is not a rational reasoning in a person's life where it becomes the guide that leads somebody to some kind of life. It cannot do that. That's why you hear this said sometimes. You see people just making choices and they're destroying their lives. And somebody will ask this question, do they not see what they're doing? No, they don't. They're blind. They can't see that this is destroying their marriage. It's destroying their relationships. It's destroying all of these things. And and they can't see it because only the light of Christ reveals what is true. Only the light of Christ reveals what's glory. And the light of Christ divides. It identifies those that are His and identifies those that are not His. And so this great tragedy of unbelief comes where the world just says, God, I'm just not interested in you. I'd rather be my own God, and I'll, I'll take my chances when I stand before you in judgment. And that's a tragedy, when you could live here in the freedom of the light of Christ. That's utter insanity, what I just talked about there. Utter insanity. So listen to these words. Here's what blindness of sin does. John eight eighteen. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me, he bears witness about me. And so they said to him, so religious leaders, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know know my father also. So Jesus is affirming his deity. He is affirming that he is God there. He is equal to his father. But when you're blind, you can't see it. But I think a a natural question we have to deal with for a moment is this. Why? Why does the world hate God? Why is there just, man, when you watch, watch people on TV or you talk to people, it's just, ugh, just, man, people can get really angry. Why? Well, the first reason is simply this, and it's in Romans 1, 19 through 21, is the world hates and suppresses the truth. They don't want the truth to be a part of things. So let me read it again. Romans 1, 19 and following. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that what is clearly seen, that his works have been carried out in God. So one of the reasons the world hates God is it just 
suppresses the truth, hates the truth, doesn't want to come to the light. And secondly, is the world's just blind spiritually, just doesn't, doesn't understand. So that's why sometimes you may share your faith with somebody. And, and I know Matt, Matt shares his faith a lot. You come to people and, well, they just, they, 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 they don't understand it. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And they're just blind. They can't see it. And, like, and we're like, man, can you not see it? I've, I've, I've drawn it on this piece of paper. Can you not see it? It's got three circles here. And it's really, really clear. And, and they're like, man, boy, I, I can't see it. And the reason they can't see it is they're blind spiritually. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, they, so the world hates the truth, suppresses the truth, they're blind spiritually, and thirdly, it's just simply this, the world just loves darkness. And those are the very words of Jesus. And this is the judgment, light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light. So the fourth point this morning was there's an incredible tragedy of unbelief that is connected to the gospel. But there's an even greater one. And it's in verse 11. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Who's he talking about? The Jews. He's talking about the Jews here. First century Jews. Not Abraham's generation but first century Jews. Their long-awaited Messiah was walking the streets of Jericho, Nazareth, Capernaum, Jerusalem, the hillside, lakeside. You could go see him. He was there, walking in their generation. This phrase, came to his own, literally could be translated from the Greek with this, he came home. He came home. He came to his his hometown. He came to his home people. He came to his whatever homes you want, homeboys, whatever it is, home sisters, whatever. He came home. He came to the place that was his chosen people. That's where he came. And of all the people in the history of the world who should have fully embraced Jesus, should have been ready for Jesus, was the first century Jewish people. But through the centuries, here's what happened with the Jews. They moved from a biblical understanding of the Messiah to an understanding of the Messiah based in their experiences of being oppressed. So here's what they wanted. They wanted a Messiah who would rescue them from who? From Rome. Their history had been oppression. We, don't want, to, we want to be our people, our nation. We want these Gentiles gone. We want, to be, we want to be Jews living here, just us. And so they had moved from a biblical understanding that Messiah would come and he would suffer. By the way, Genesis 3.15, the very first prophetic word about Jesus. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and you will strike his heel, indicating what? A wound. When a serpent strikes... It creates a wound. Already in Genesis 3.15 was a prophetic word that suffering would come connected to the Messiah. So here they are. They should have known. They missed it. And they didn't see it. And I want to remind you of how grave their sin was, these first century Jews. That's why Peter in the day of Pentecost, his sermon has some of the content 
that is there. The promise when Christ walked the earth was being fulfilled in their midst. He was walking their streets. The Messiah was in the land. Fulfilling Genesis 12 to the promise to Abraham that from him all the families of the earth would be blessed. That's a prophetic word as well that through Christ he would bless the families of the earth. Christ came in the first century at the perfect time. Galatians 4.4 But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive as adoption as sons. So He came to fulfill the promise. He came at the perfect time. He came to a specific place. He didn't go to Rome. He didn't go to Greece. He didn't go to Washington, D.C. He didn't exist. But even if he'd gone there, he didn't come there. He came to the Jews. He came to Israel. And that ground called the Promised Land held so much promise because the Messiah would come and live there. He would die there. And the hope of the world would be there in the Promised Land. So the promise was fulfilled in the Incarnation. He came at the perfect time. He came to a specific place. He came to a specific people, the Jews. And He came to a prepared people. So listen to this. 4,000 years before Christ came, Adam and Eve were told that Jesus would crush Satan. Genesis 3.15. 18 years, 1,800 years after Adam, God told Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed. 1,400 years before Christ, God came to Moses and called him to go rescue the people. And all through Moses' ministry were these prophetic pictures about who Christ would be. A 1,000 years before Jesus came, he had this picture from King David and his writings and his life of things about the Messiah. Listen to this. This group of people in the first century had 4,000 years to get ready for the coming of Jesus. And he's standing in their home, in their streets, on the mountainside teaching. And that's why the darkness of that generation's heart and the responsibility that is upon the first century Jews is so grave is because they've been waiting for 4,000 years and there he is and on a Friday morning all they could shout was crucify, crucify, crucify. So if you're here in this room this morning and you've been saying to yourself, well, I'm just going to wait a little bit longer to come to Christ because I need to know more. I want to say to you, the Jews had 4,000 years of information and they rejected him. And I would say to you today, don't. Come to him today. And the clearest picture of the grave danger of having knowledge without relationship is the Jews. 700 years before Jesus came, Isaiah said, this is what we're going to do, the Messiah. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs He carried our sorrows, and yet we esteemed Him not. We considered Him afflicted. Something's wrong with Him. And this word, receive, is a word of intimate fellowship. 
of, of closeness, intimacy. God came near so that he would be received and the world said, mm, I don't want you. And there's two considerations from the Jews I want to talk about just for a moment before we move on. Do not reject the true light of Christ by rejecting the testimony of him in Scripture. In other words, do not form an image of Christ that is outside of the testimony of Scripture. That's what the Jews did, and so here he is. Christ, their Messiah, is in front of them, and they don't know that it's him. They can't see it because they had formed another picture. Secondly, if you think all you need to do is gain knowledge without a relationship, then you will die and be eternally separated from God. See, what happens is, and this is the failure of a lot of denominations and churches, is they put these cute sayings together and these creeds. I'm not against creeds, but if you'll just recite the creed, then you're in the team. You're in the family. And it's more than just mentally agreeing with things. It is giving our lives and surrendering our lives. It is receiving Christ. And so if you're waiting for more information, I'm here today. I've told you enough already in this time right now for you to trust Christ right where you sit. You just, you believe. He does the work. He does the work. We don't do the work. He does the work. But he'll do the work. And I think sometimes it's a, a leading up thing, and I'll talk more about that here in just a moment. Two more things. How about some good news? You want some good news? Because that's tragic about the first century Jews. You know why the temple fell in AD 70? Because God brought a huge judgment upon them because of their rejection of the Messiah. And it wasn't until 1948 until they became a nation again and they still have lots of strife that's there in their rejection of the Messiah. Great news for them. There's going to come a day they'll believe. When the fullness, Paul writes in Romans, when the fullness of the Gentiles who believe comes in, um, there will be this unique thing that happens among the Jews. I want to talk now just for a moment about the gospel's gift of faith. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And so the scripture affirms this glorious reality that receiving Jesus is biblical. And verses 12 and 13 affirm the balance between what we do as humans, we don't save ourselves, but our response is to believe in His name, to receive Him. And it also speaks about the divine sovereignty of God in the work of salvation, that those who believe are not born of themselves, of their own will, because they said some words, but they are born of God, that God does the salvation. And so John is saying, some rejected him. The world rejected him, though the world had been made by him. He came to his own, the Jews, and they rejected him. They didn't receive him, but there were some who received him. And for those who received him, he gave them the right to become children of God. This word receive in the Greek means to personally trust, not just mentally agree and mentally. It's called assent, just give a nod to mentally. Okay, yeah, that's true, without ever giving the life and the heart. And I think it's easy to say a bunch of organized words to put to, that have been put together by godly people and just to affirm them intellectually, but that is not enough. 
we must have a relationship. So let me deal with this just for a moment. To receive Christ is to believe in Christ, and to believe in Christ is to receive Christ. To receive Christ is to believe in Christ. To believe in Christ is to receive Christ. Two things with that. It means to welcome Him into your life. Relationship. I'm, I, I'm loving this reality that you have rescued me. And it means also embracing all that Jesus is. And let me tell you why I think the gospel is good news, and there's a number of them, but I want to just deal with one. Here's why the gospel is such good news, and I looked at and thought back on my own life this week. I had kind of come like the prodigal son to an end in myself. I was the focus of my life. I was the most important thing in my life, and everything in my life was orchestrated out in and around that, and it was crumbling. And I think along the way, sometimes in our life, God begins to reveal himself, getting us ready, getting us ready. And I think he was doing that with me. I was taking an examination of my life, and, and boy, I wasn't happy. Um, there was joy that was gone and things that should have been, um, things that should have been lifting me just didn't. And it just, they just, the things of the earth just don't have the power to transform us like the love of God does. And so along the way, I was coming to this conclusion that, boy, I am out of control and all along, I was watching a friend of mine who loved Jesus and already come to Jesus. He was talking to me about Jesus. Um, and I think God was working on my heart. And I'd kind of come to an end myself and realize, boy, I can't, I can't do anything about this. And it was that night on a Sunday night in Waco, Texas, where something happened that transformed me. And it was a moment in time where... So you were to say, so did you believe first and then receive, or did you receive first and then believe? And I would say, yeah, it happens all at the same time. That's, I think it, yeah, I think we need to be careful about these sequences. I think when you're born, are you born? Or you, you're born, right? So when you're spiritually born, you're born. And so it happens. It just, it happens. And, I, and it happened to me, and I've never been the same since. I can literally say that. Obviously, not been perfect since. But I have not been the same because I tasted the water of this life and I tasted His water and I'm not going back. I'm not going back. Because life came and light came and I became His child. He gave the right to all who would receive Him who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. This word children means little ones, and I'm cool about being a little one this morning. I'll be a little one of God. I am great with that. It is an amazing, great reality. Lastly, is here's what happens in verse 13. We become God-born people. I think 12 and 13 are so important. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave them the right to become children of God. Who were born, not of blood, not of the will, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. But born of God. So we become God-born people. Watch. I know this sounds silly, but I'm going to say it anyway. 
on August the 25th, 1965 in Hereford, Texas, one of the most amazing things in the history of this nation happened. Does anybody have a guess what happened? I was born. Did I birth myself? Hello, did I birth myself? No. Watch. I don't know why. I, don't, I, I, I just, for the life of me, I don't, under, I don't understand it. And I know in some of the nuances of the doctrine of election and things of that nature, people wrestle with and, and see some of that differently. But I just, th- this has nothing to do with that. Listen to me. We have nothing to do with our salvation. If we don't birth ourselves physically, how in the world do spiritually dead people birth themselves spiritually? And that's what John is saying here. Look at verse 13. Who were born not of blood, not of royal blood, not of hereditary, it's not hereditary, it's not anything like that. Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. It's not this. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be good. I'm going to be so good. I'm going to be good. At the end of my life, I've been so good that this scales of my bad deeds and my good deeds are they going to tip in the favor because I've done such. I've been such a moral person. I was really good, and and uh, you know, I I I I paid for the floors at my church and and man I was so good and and boy I I will of my flesh I I I did it no then John says not born of blood nor the will of man nor the will of the flesh watch nor of the will of man do you understand what that means that means this that if I'm lost today and I don't know the Lord, then we've got problems if I don't know the Lord. But pretend for a moment I don't know the Lord. If I say this, I, 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 I'm doing this, I'm entering a relationship with Christ, then who's entering the Who's in control of that? I am. So it's not our will, nor the will of man, but what happens? We are birthed. By God. Now let me just deal with this for a moment. How does that fully work? What's the sequence? I don't know. I just know that he does it. I know that he does it. And I know that sometimes he's opening our eyes along the way. And lost people are coming to an understanding. And there comes a moment where in a service, at a youth camp, on a mission trip, at a home, in a car, at a lunch table. In that moment, people, God has been working. He's been using the testimony of him and other uh, in people's lives. And there comes a moment in that moment that he reveals himself and faith happens. There's receiving Christ. There's believing in his name and salvation happens in that moment. And it's not because we willed it. If I could will salvation in your life today, would I do that? Absolutely. I'd go all over Collin County today willing salvation into people's life, but I can't do that. I can't do it with my own kids. You can't do it with your kids. You can't do it with your spouse. So we are birthed not by our will. We are birthed by God. And I don't know why 
we don't like that or some people don't like that, some people don't. I love it because here's what it says to me. I didn't start this relationship and so therefore um, I'm not responsible to finish it. He who began a good work last week, a week ago, he who began a good work in you is what? He is faithful to what? Complete it. So my security, if my salvation's grounded in what I did, my will, then my sanctification and my perseverance is connected to me. And Paul says, no, it's God's work. It's God's work. Let me close with these two thoughts. There's a place called, back in the day, called the Africa Inland Missionary Society. And they were having a service one night, and a woman stood up to give testimony and listen to what she said. She said, I had heard the gospel so many times by the hearing of the ear, but one day it went in and it sat down in my heart. (laughs) I read that this week, and I thought, what a beautiful description. Because some of us were that way. Growing up in church, we'd had people sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, sharing the gospel, went in the air, went in the air, went in the air, went in the air, and then one day in July, it went here. And it just sat down in our heart. And in that moment, we believed, we received, we believed, we believed and we received, and we were transferred from darkness to the gospel of His Son. And it's incredibly, incredibly glorious. In the early 1800s, President Andrew Jackson was the president, and and he issued a full pardon to a guy named George Wilson. George Wilson was sentenced to be hanged. Well, something interesting happened. George Wilson said, I don't want your pardon. So this great crisis happened with can you refuse a pardon from the President of the United States and went all the way to the Supreme Court. So the Supreme Court met together and discussed this and made a ruling and said this, yes, you can refuse a pardon from the President of the United States and George Wilson was hanged. He was hanged. And I read that and I just thought, man, the lunacy. Do you get the point? The greatest offer of pardon has been done in the history of the world when God's Son came and died on a cross. He bore in His body our sin. And He offers you and I eternal life that impacts now. And to say no to that is tragic. So if you're here in the room today, I'm going to be back at the back. Mark's going to be back there too. I think you shouldn't leave. You, I, don't, I think you shouldn't. I think you shouldn't convince your. Try to convince yourself in this moment to say this. I'll just. I'll wait another week. I need a little bit more time. The Jews had four thousand years, and it wasn't enough. Some of them believed. Don't wait. Because if you receive, you believe, and when you believe, you receive, and you get the right to become a child of God. And we would love to talk with you about that. Let's pray.